number 23, entitled Outside the Camp. We're going to be looking here at chapter 9, verses 9 to 17, and I'll just read verse number 9 here to get started. And as Jesus passed forth from thence, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the receipt of custom. And he saith unto him, Follow me. And he arose and followed him. Acts chapter 3 gives the account of Peter and John in Jerusalem going up to the temple for the ninth hour prayer. And they encountered uh, a well-known beggar that was crippled and laid by the gate and was there asking for alms of those that went in. And of course, Peter had no money to give him and told him so, Uh, but he said he would give him what he had. And Peter said, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And then we're told that Peter took him by the right hand and immediately this beggar stood up and went walking and jumping up and down into the temple area praising God. Now the people that saw it, of course, knew uh, who this man was and how long that he had been in that condition, and they crowd around Peter and John in amazement and said that they're, they're looking at them, um, and, and Peter just asked them, why, why are you looking at us as though it was something in us that did this, as though it was our name or our holiness or our own power that caused this man to walk. And he proceeded to tell them that it was the name of Jesus and through faith in his name that had healed this man. Well, contrast that for a a moment in your minds with the way that Jesus spoke. You see, Jesus, on the other hand, he spoke, he commanded, and he healed of himself as having authority. Peter and John were quick to say, it's not in us. We didn't, it, this is not of us. We didn't, we didn't do this of ourselves. But it was in the name of Jesus Christ. But on the other hand, when Jesus healed or commanded or taught or spoke, he did of himself. Sometimes he would refer to, yes, what was written. But oftentimes he would say, I say unto you. And then in instances like we're going to encounter here in Matthew chapter number 9, he simply spoke of himself and said, follow me or arise or go or whatever that the case may be. Well, chapter 8, verses twenty, beginning with verse 23, all the way through verse 8 in chapter 9, is what we looked at last time. And, and we're presented there with a group of three miracles And the commonality in these miracles is how they all emphasize the authority of Jesus, expressing something about who he is. We see there that Jesus has power over nature. Jesus has power over demons. Jesus has power over disease. And Jesus continues to speak as one having authority, um, just as the assembled crowds noted after his Sermon on the Mount. And of course, Jesus' deity is revealed in this speech. He speaks as one having authority. He speaks as, as one that, that gives divine command and, and power that only God can do. He, he spoke to the wind, and he spoke to the water, and they obeyed him, immediately producing a calm. He commanded demons, 
and the demons obeyed him. He commanded um, disease. He healed disease, and he forgave sins. These are, these are things that only God can do. Now, on the one hand, some um, men were brought to amazement, being astounded by this and wondering, what sort of man is this? Only God can do these things. And then on the other hand, you had some that were greatly offended. Who is this man to think that he can do this? That's blaspheming. Only God can do this. Well, Matthew follows these miracles here with another interaction section. And we've seen him sort of doing this um, since we started in in this part of Matthew's gospel. And here in verses 9 to 17, uh, we have again this sort of of interaction with Jesus and, and others. And Matthew is also showing us increasing conflict and opposition to Jesus, particularly by the leading groups of Israel that are obviously building to ultimately to their rejection. Um, But he also gives us here a brief preview of Jesus' teaching with parables, um, as well as hinting toward his coming death. And both of those things will be much more pronounced as we get later into Matthew's gospel. Matthew here also shows us in, in the passage that we're looking at today why Jesus explained he was not destroying the old covenant but was fulfilling it we talked about that it was back in the sermon on the mount and it seems like you know why did jesus bring that up well obviously that was something that he was thought to be doing something that he was charged um, with doing but we see here that that in this passage jesus is making clear he is bringing in a new way he is the mediator of a new and a better covenant the way the writer of hebrews um, twice puts it in in that letter So we want to look at this um, in in two particular parts. In verses 9 to 13, where we have the calling of of Matthew, showing us Jesus calling whom he wills to call. And in verses 14 to 17, we have the fasting friends of the groom, where this question about um, following the um, traditional uh, rabbinical fasts and the disciples of Jesus and those of John and even of the Pharisees. So we want to start here. Again, here looking at at verse number 9, where Jesus calls whom he will. Verse 9, And as Jesus passed forth from thence, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the receipt of custom. And he saith unto him, Follow me. And he arose and followed him. Now this Matthew that is mentioned, it it is the author of this gospel. It is speaking of the same one. Uh, Mark and Luke also have this particular account. And both of them use his other name, Levi. Uh, Mark also notes that he is the son of Alphaeus. Now, he, it could be possible, and we don't know, but it could be that he was a brother to the James, the son of Alphaeus, which was also a disciple, um, noted in Mark chapter 3 and verse 18. However, um, we, we, we just don't know uh, if, if it just happens that he has a father of that name and, and James uh, was another disciple that also had the father of that name. We don't know. It, it could have been, but, but we don't know for certain. But what we do know about Matthew is that he was a tax collector, a tax collector for the Roman Empire, particularly for Herod Antipas, the Tetrarch of Galilee. He worked at the custom house. Um, the custom house was stationed on this major road that ran around um, the northern part of the, of, the, of the Sea of Galilee, the, the northern shore. 
of the Sea of Galilee. It was a major road that, that um, um, goods were transported by and, and such. And so he, he collected taxes on goods in transit on the road. So these might be seen as somewhat like um, business taxes and, and, and such things as that. Um, now, tax collectors in general, they were despised by most of those in Israel. And they were looked upon, as, in fact, as being traitors to the nation. And since Matthew's name was all, also had the name of Levi, um, it's very probable then that he was descended from the Levites. And Levites, you recall, were those that were supposed to be dedicated to some religious service. They, they didn't um, pursue normal vocations and professions like others of Israel and, and have their um, inherited land that they would, would work and, and, and such. They, they weren't to do that. They were rather to be given certain uh, places to live, and they certainly would, would do some work as far as growing food and such um, in, in that regard. But they were to be dedicated to some sort of religious service, and so this would make Matthew even doubly traitorous to those of the Pharisees. He's collecting Roman taxes, and here he is, a Levite, supposed to be dedicated to some sort of, of service for Israel and, and for God, and, and he's even doing worse than that. He is, he is performing service for the Roman Empire. Well, Jesus called him here to be a disciple. And you notice the words here, follow me. And again, not in the name of anyone else, not in reference to something else. Jesus says, follow me. He issues this command of himself for Matthew to follow him. So just like he called the four fishermen that we saw previously in Matthew's account, Matthew notes that um, he simply got up and and followed Jesus. Um, When it's placed here, obviously we do see a contrast with those in the previous chapter who essentially made excuses for not following Jesus wholeheartedly. Um, they wanted to follow, sort of, um, but they sort of wanted to do it more on their own terms and at their own convenience. Um, and Jesus says, simply follow me. And some of the others uh, in Mark and, and Luke, they, they make note that he, he got up and left all. Like right there, he got up and left his business. And again, just imagine, you know, what sort of man is it that, that goes around and would call some man that's engaged in his livelihood and say, leave all of that and follow me. Now, obviously, Jesus had a special, specific purpose for doing so that comes out a little later uh, as we keep going through Matthew. But nevertheless, that's what happened. Verse number 10. And it came to pass, as Jesus sat at meat in the house, behold, many publicans and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. Now, the rest of this passage through um, verse number 13, the rest of this passage centers around this feast that Matthew held, and and he obviously held for Jesus. It was um, in honor of him. And this phrase, sat at meat, um, which we encounter in a number of places, essentially means to recline at table. And it typically indicated a more formal dinner with guests reclining on cushions around a low table. So this isn't just your, you know, your everyday supper sort sort of thing, very common sort of thing, but it, it was more of a special occasion type of feast. It was customary for at, at times of holding such a feast that 
there would be invitations to um, the wealthy, to the influential, to the important people, people of high standing um, within the community, to be invited to such a feast and, and to come and to be a part of it. But in this case, the feast was held by a publican in his own house. And so no one of the upper Jewish society would have dared to have attended such a feast put on by a publican in a publican's house, eating the publican's food. They would have never entertained the idea. So Matthew describes that rather than the upper crust um, of the Jewish society, as it were, those of, of high standing, it was a good number of publicans and sinners that came and sat down with Jesus and his disciples. Now, this word publican actually comes from the old Latin term publicanus, um, which referred to public servants generally. Um, and it's a word that was used to refer to tax collectors in the New Testament. Now, as far as the way that the Pharisees and those of, would consider themselves of more orthodox Judaism viewed the tax collectors, they would not, um, for instance, receive alms from tax collectors since the money was essentially viewed as being tainted. And if a tax collector entered the house of a Jew, everything in that house became unclean just because of his presence there. The Pharisees even went so far as to justify lying to tax collectors because they were, they were wicked and, and unclean. So apparently they weren't even worthy of being told the truth. Now, these traditions and, and many more beside are found in the Talmudic writings. Now, the, the Talmudic writings came after the time um, of the writing of the New Testament in the first century. They came second century and, and later, these writings. But what these writings were, were the writing down of the oral traditions of the rabbis that had, that had been passed down generation after generation after generation after generation. And these were the traditions that governed Judaism. Now, sometimes Jesus or the gospel writer will refer specifically to the traditions, and that's what they're referring to. So these are just some of the traditions. And again, you can find these um, in, in the Mishnah and the, the Talmudic um, writings of, of Judaism. These were the traditions that govern their lives. Now, as far as the sinners that are mentioned goes, um, it's actually a pretty broad category as viewed by traditional Judaism. Now, it, you know, in, in other words, we see sinners and, and we, we think, oh, you, you know, these are the, the most immoral people. And it certainly included that, but it was actually broader than that. Um, essentially, sinners was, was a way that they referred um, to Jews who did not live according to the Pharisaic standards and traditions. So they were Jews in the sense that they're descended from, from Jacob, but they didn't follow the rabbinic traditions. Um, perhaps they fraternized with Gentiles. Um, and this, they would include in this group people like tax collectors and money lenders along with thieves and crooks and drunks and prostitutes and, and all sorts. So it was a very broad category, and certainly it did include those that were, that were openly immoral, but it didn't, didn't only include those. It really included 
all those who didn't live according to um, Orthodox Judaism of the day. In fact, they had a, a term for them, if I remember correctly, I think it's something like um, Hachretz, um, which would refer to um, the, uh, no, it would be Amharetz. So it would be referred to the, the people of the land. In other words, they're, they're Jews, but they don't live according to Orthodox Judaism. Now, rabbinical tradition actually taught this, and I'm going to quote this, let not a man ever associate with a wicked person, not even for the purpose of bringing him near to the Torah. This is from uh, Melchizedek Amalek, uh, which is a, a commentary, a rabbinical commentary, um, basically on Exodus chapter 18 and verse 1. So in other words, in their view, you, these people that could be labeled as publicans and sinners were people that, that you would not even associate with, not even for the purpose of trying to evangelize them, so to speak. Not even for the purpose of trying to proselytize them, to, to bring them into conformity um, to the Torah and the traditions. You, you did not associate. Why? Because that association made you unclean. It made you defiled. So this is the way that they were viewed. So again, when, he, when we're told that publicans and sinners were gathered at, at this dinner, again, it's a very broad category. Um, probably certainly did include those that were just openly um, immoral in life, but it's just it's not limited to just that. Now it's clear when we read this verse that the feast was in honor of Jesus, and and he was obviously the the central person. He was the reason that people were there. Verse number eleven, and when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto his disciples. Why eateth your master with publicans and sinners? So the Pharisees questioned Jesus' disciples about this feast. They questioned why he would eat with such people that would make him defiled. Now, the implication, of course, is that Jesus could not be a prophet from God or he would never have defiled himself in this way by sitting down to dinner with people that they considered unclean. Verse 12. But when Jesus heard that, he said unto them, They that be whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. So Jesus responds, and he responds with two statements, one here in verse 12 and the next in verse 13. Now, the first statement that we get here is actually a proverbial statement. And uh, as far as I understand, scholars haven't really uncovered the origin of this statement, but it's a a statement uh, or something very similar to it that's very common in many ancient um, cultures, essentially saying, you know, sick people need a doctor, not healthy people. Um, That's essentially what the saying is. And again, it's a common proverb. But Jesus uses this common proverb to highlight his mission, which is given a little more in the very next verse. So verse 13. But go ye and learn what that meaneth. I will have mercy and not sacrifice, for I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now again, go and learn what that means is, was a common saying, as I understand it, among the rabbis. And essentially it meant that the questioner needed to go and, and study something again, something that they ought to know already. It's, it's sort of like saying, that's a dumb question. 
You need to go back and, and, and reread, restudy. You should know this. I'm not going to answer it. You go back and figure it out, essentially, that, that sort of thing. And then he quotes to them a part of a verse that we know as Hosea chapter 6 and, and verse 6. I'm going to read the whole verse. For I desired mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. Now, what does that mean? Well, when you go back to Hosea chapter 6 and verse number 6, the word for mercy, it is chesed, this word that we have seen so many times in the Psalms, we've talked about so many times. It's a word that means something along the line of loyal love. So it's a word, it, it refers to goodness, it refers to kindness, it refers to c- compassion or benevolence, but it also refers to steadfastness and faithfulness, and it implies some kind of relationship. In other words, it's, 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 not, it's not either or. Oh, well, it refers to kindness or it refers to some sort of faithfulness. No, it, 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 it's both. And it's often used with covenant reference to God's unfailing faithfulness to his promises and the people to whom those promises are made. Now, we've, we've again, we've been tracking this through the Psalms as we've been studying through them, seeing how that it is used, and seeing um, what it means. Now, the statement here in Hosea 6, God desires faithfulness, loyal love, steadfastness to him and to his word more than he desires sacrifices and burnt offerings. Now, the second part of that statement in Hosea 6 actually goes along. He says, um, <clears throat> excuse me, I desired mercy and not sacrifice and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. So the context here in Hosea chapter 6 is in reference to Israel and Judah and how that they would sort of quote-unquote repent and turn to the Lord in sincerity. So in other words, they would um, be in, in some sort of time of extremity, um, be it a, a judgment in some form, be it an opposing nation, uh, whatever the case may be. And in, in time of, of such extremity, when, when all avenues seem to be exhausted, Judah and Israel would want to turn to the Lord and, and they would want to repent, so to speak. But it would only last as long as the morning dew on a hot day. And that's the imagery that Hosea uses there. I believe that's in, in verse number four. It only lasts just as long as that dew on the grass does on a very hot day. It, it disappears very quickly. And so did their wholehearted commitment. They seemed to be. They acted like they're turning to the Lord. They looked so sincere. They sounded so sincere, but it didn't last. And this is why that he said God desires mercy. God desires faithfulness. God desires loyal love. God desires lasting faithfulness, not just momentary and temporary. And then the point is, more than sacrifices or the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings, the point is that merely observing outward rituals without true heart repentance and true faith is hypocrisy that God completely rejects. And that is what Jesus refers these Pharisees that are complaining about him eating with publicans and sinners. 
That's what he refers them to go and learn what that passage means. So Jesus states his mission very plainly. He said, I came to call sinners to repentance, not the righteous. And by the righteous here, Jesus is is highlighting that no one is truly righteous of himself. And this means that the Pharisees were in the same condition as those that they looked down on and despised. And they needed the physician, and they needed repentance. But of course, they would never have it so long as they were satisfied with their own righteousness. Then we come to the second part. Beginning here in verse 14, the question of fasting. Then came to him the disciples of John, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast off, but thy disciples fast not? Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all have this, this particular series of, of events here. Um, they put this exchange um, right after the feast in Matthew's house. And that suggests that there's some sort of connection to it. Um, Matthew states that it was the disciples of John the Baptist that came to Jesus with this question. But Mark notes that it wasn't only them, but that there were Pharisees also joined in this question. Now they question why Jesus' disciples did not observe the traditional fasts like the Pharisees and even John's disciples were doing. Now, when we go back into the Old Testament. We find that the Old Covenant only mandated one annual fast day, and this was on the Day of Atonement. You can read about that, Leviticus chapter 23, verses 27 to 32. The only fast that was commanded by the Old Covenant was on the Day of Atonement, one day annually. Now, after the exile to Babylon and the Jews are are returning, we can find that by that time they were observing five annual fasts. There was a fast in the 4th, 5th, 7th, and 10th months, according to Zechariah chapter 8 and verse 19, and the festival of Purim, which uh, we read about in Esther chapter 9 and verse number 31. So there, there were five annual fasts by that time that they were observing. By the time that we get to Jesus and and the disciples here in the first century A.D., the Pharisees and and those Orthodox Jews were practicing a fast twice every week, um, which would be suggested by Luke chapter 18 and verse number 12. So there were many more fasts and, and much more regularly that were being observed by this time, and all of that came about again according to rabbinical tradition. Remember, the Old Covenant itself only mandated one day of fasting annually. Now, the fact that the Old Covenant only mandated one day of fasting does not in any way mean that they could not observe more fasts if they chose to do so. They certainly could. And you might even say, at times, it it could have been suggested. But what it did mean, the fact that the Old Covenant only commanded one fast day annually, what that did mean is that when the Pharisees or, or, or the rabbis or the priests or, or whoever of Israel, when they began to command 
that other fasts be observed. And they begin to condemn those that did not observe those fasts that they had commanded. They were actually adding to God's word. Which if you go back to the Old Covenant, um, I think it's in, in Deuteronomy, there's a place where they're, they're told they're not to add not one word to this covenant, and nor are they to diminish one word from it. And to do so meant that they would inherit the curses of the covenant. Well, the Pharisees are questioning Jesus and his disciples because they were not observing these traditional fasts that those Orthodox Jews of the day were observing. Now, the connection with Matthew's feast seems to suggest that Matthew actually held his feast perhaps on one of their traditional fast days, and that is likely what prompted this question. Let's look at verse number 15. And Jesus said unto them, Can the children of the bride chamber mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken from them, and then shall they fast. So Jesus uses a, a common reference, obviously something that they would readily know from the uh, wedding and marriage customs of the day. And he essentially asked if the friends of the bridegroom, sort of like what we think of maybe as groomsmen today, he asks, can they fast while the groom was with them? Now, what Jesus is asking here is actually a question of possibility. Is it possible? Well, the presence of the groom with the friends of the groom or the groomsmen meant that it was a time of feasting and joy. And the point of Jesus' question is, is that it's not possible to celebrate with the groom and fast at the same time. It's just simply not possible to do that. It's like asking, can you sit down and eat Thanksgiving dinner with your family and fast at the same time? Well, well no, that's not, that's not possible. I mean, if you're fasting, then you're, you're not eating. And if you're eating, then you're not fasting. Like you, the, the, the two, you can't do both at the same time. That's the point. He's saying, is it possible? Now, of course, according to the marriage customs of the day, the bridegroom would, would come and join with the, um, this would be prior to the actual um, wedding ceremony, and he would join with the, uh, with the friends, the groomsmen, and, and there would be a feasting. And then before, as I understand it, before the um, actual ceremony, if you were, were to take place, they would separate. The bridegroom would, would separate, and the bride would separate from, from her um, Ladies, and, and, and there would be a, a, a fast in preparation for the wedding, then a ceremony, and then you've got all of the, all of the feasting and stuff, and that could go on um, for a week in that day. And so that's what Jesus is referring to. And he's saying, can they? Can they essentially celebrate with the bridegroom while he's with them and fast at the same time? Obviously not. So Jesus is likening himself here to the groom and his disciples to the groomsman or the friend of the bridegroom. John the Baptist used this very same imagery to explain his joy at the ministry of Jesus. That's in John chapter 3, verses 28 and 29. 
He uses the image from the other perspective, though. He uses it from the perspective of the groomsmen. Um, and, you know, John and, and Jesus' disciples, that would be um, their part in that. Jesus then goes on to refer to a, to a, a time that's coming, a future time, when the bridegroom will be taken away. And again, this sort of corresponds um, to when right before that ceremony time that the bridegroom would separate and fast in, in preparation. And the words that he uses, that he would be taken away, the word that he uses actually suggests a forcible removal. A violent death is what Jesus is referring to, though he is not being completely clear yet. He's just sort of giving this as a hint at this point. Later, he's going to become much more clear um, about his upcoming death. Verse 16. No man putteth a piece of new cloth onto an old garment, for that which is put in to fill it up taketh from the garment, and the rent is made worse. This is another one of these places where you do have a conjunction, and it's not translated here, and I don't think any of the, I'm not sure if any of the English translations um, translate it, but there is one in, in the Greek manuscript. It is connected. What follows here in verses 16 and 17 are essentially two analogies that Jesus makes to illustrate the point that he just gave. So we have sort of light parables at this point. Again, uh, and we'll talk more obviously about the parables and, and their function in Jesus' ministry because that's going to become much more, much more prevalent a little later on in Matthew. But we sort of have, have some light parables here, um, some light analogies that Jesus gave. And essentially what, it mean, what he means here is this. <clears throat> when you had an old and a worn garment in that day, and say that it got a rip, it got a tear in it, got a, some sort of hole in it, you did not patch it with a piece of new cloth that had not been shrunken. If you do, then when the new cloth does shrink, it's actually going to pull and tear the old, making a bigger hole, making more of a problem. Now, that was simple enough for them to understand in that day. The point is, is that the two pieces of cloth are mismatched. One has been old, it has been shrunken, it has been worn. The other is new, it's, it's not, been, not been shrunken. They're a mismatch. You, you can't put two incompatible pieces of cloth together, was the point he was making. Similar to what we saw in, in the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus is getting at is that he is bringing in the new and better covenant. Again, the writer of Hebrews refers to this um, uh, two different times in, in that letter. He is bringing in the new and better covenant with the law of Christ, everything that he commanded. There's a new and better way than the old covenant with the law of Moses. And he is calling them to the new way. Now, the old way, obviously, then, is the old covenant and all the traditions that have been added over, over the centuries. Jesus came to call them to the new way of following him, and the new covenant promised in the Old Testament is not a patch onto the old covenant. Writer of Hebrews, again, makes this clear as well. He says, by calling the one new, he makes the other old. 
And just like an, an old garment that's no longer of service, it's going to be folded up and put away. And this new covenant is going to take its place. This is what Jesus is hinting at as he is speaking to these Pharisees concerning their questions about fasting. Verse 17. Neither do men put, a, put new wine into old bottles, else the bottles break and the wine runneth out and the bottles perish. But they put new wine into new bottles and both are preserved. Now this second analogy says essentially the same thing. Wine skins were bottles that were made from animal hides. The new ones would be flexible and they could stretch and expand with the pressure of the new wine um, and the, the continuing um, fermenting process and, and, and so on as, as it aged. The old ones were dried and they were more brittle. That doesn't mean that they weren't, didn't have some use, but they couldn't contain the new wine. They could not withstand that pressure and it, they would burst the skins and then the, the wine would run out and then the bottles ruined and neither would have been of any benefit. So again, you have two mismatched and incompatible items. You can't put the two together. That is Jesus' point. Now as we think about this passage, Matthew highlights Jesus' authority here. Um, his, his authority, his right, his authority, his power, his ability to call whom he wills. According to the Pharisees, as they stand by looking at Jesus and his disciples going into this publican's house and all these publicans and sinners flocking in there to sit down and, and, and eat together, they, they thought they would never be there. They would never enter that house and be at, at such a feast. But you see, the Pharisees didn't get to say who could be kingdom citizens based on their own standards. But Jesus calls whom he will. And he says very plainly, I came as a physician to the sick. I came to call sinners to repentance and to give them life. But Jesus not observing the rabbinical traditions also leads to these analogies at the end about the incompatibility of the old and the new. And the epistle of James that we've looked at somewhat recently and the epistle to the Hebrews are, are both letters that capture very well the difficulty that so many Jews had in converting to Christ. And we, we've talked about this a number of different times and that's the relationship that they had to the old covenant Law. What was that relationship? Well, both of those epistles show very plainly that you can't, you can't have both. You can't be under the old covenant and be in Christ and the new covenant at the same time. Now, listen to the way the writer of Hebrews sums this up as you get to the end of that letter. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 9 to 15. Be not carried about with diverse and strange doctrines, for it's a good thing that the heart be established with grace, not with meats which have not profited them that have been occupied therein. We have an altar whereof they have no right to eat which serve the tabernacle. For the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned. Where are they burned? They're burned without the camp or outside the camp. Wherefore, Jesus also 
that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. What does that mean? Well, the writer of Hebrews says it means, let us go forth therefore unto him without the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come. By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. So what did it mean as he's writing to these Jewish believers who are tempted to return to the temple and the priests and the sacrifices and the traditions and the law and all of those sort of things? What is he saying to them? He says, you need to go outside the camp. That means outside the old covenant. Cut off from the old covenant. Those that were outside of the camp were cut off from Israel within the camp. Go outside the camp. In other words... Works and animal sacrifices and offerings for righteousness and righteousness through faith are incompatible. They, they, they will not go together. Paul said the same thing when he spoke about in Philippians how that all of, all of, all of his... All of his works he counted as nothing but a big pile of garbage compared to the righteousness which is by faith. Paul said, that righteousness is what I want to be clothed with and stand before God, not my own righteousness that was worked out through law-keeping and traditions. <laughs>